Welcome to In Place, where we have conversations with neighbors, volunteers, and professionals in the Commonwealth, linking local stories to global issues of displacement and resettlement. I'm Katie Powell. And I'm Rebecca Hester. As your host, our goal is to illuminate how everyone, no matter their background, has some connection to displacement. In this episode of In Place, we speak with Krish Omora Vidnaraja, the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service in Baltimore, Maryland. Krish speaks with our guest hosts, Katie Randall and Dr. Marsha Davitt, about how she went from working in the White House to running the largest faith-based nonprofit organization serving refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers in the United States. She describes how her family fled Sri Lanka when she was nine months old and explains the importance of humanitarian aid to those, like her parents, who relied on the generosity of others to literally put clothes on their backs. One of the most important take-home points of this interview is that all of us have a role to play in making the United States a welcoming country for those seeking refuge. My name is Krish Omer Vignaraja, and I serve as President and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. Can you tell us a little bit about what that position entails? And, and how you got into, like how you got into what, you, what you're doing now? So I can't say when I began my career that I thought that this is exactly where I'd end up. I began my career as a lawyer, spent a little bit of time um, as a consultant at Mad McKinsey, joined the Obama administration, so I'd been senior advisor to Secretary Hillary Clinton and then Secretary John Kerry, and then served at the White House as Michelle Obama's policy director. I then uh, left the White House and uh, ran for governor of Maryland and then came out of that hoping that I would be able to take a little bit of time off when I was approached about this job and in many ways it felt like a calling just because I was nine months old when my parents fled a civil war in Sri Lanka and came to this country. And I know that while a lot has changed since 1980 that there are so many people, communities, organizations like LRS that are championing us remaining true to who we are and who we have always been. And I just think that of any of the issues that I could be working on, immigration is by far the most important one. Uh, so do you focus on health specifically or just immigration broadly? Immigration broadly. Okay. And is mm -hmm. that specifically with like refugees or? No, broadly. So literally um, everything from refugees to asylum seekers, we are responding in New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas mm -hmm. to everything happening there. Just yesterday I was on the Hill for a World Refugee Day, but also talking about a number of the issues related to DREAMers, TPS, you know, we strongly support comprehensive immigration reform. So we try to do it all. Yeah. Okay, so if there were like one issue that you could say is the biggest thing facing immigrants right now that you're really, really passionate about, what would that be? I think the greatest threat that I see right now is the basic inhumanity that frankly I have not seen in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. Though I have conversations and people reference internment camps, I know obviously there's some language about concentration camps, but I do think that you know when I saw family separation happen and to see that as a deterrent policy mm -hmm. to literally rip babies from their mothers that kind of inhumanity 
the extreme lack of empathy is a problem that it certainly touches what's happening on the border. It touches the fact that our refugee admissions has deeply declined 90, uh, sorry, 75% in just the last two years. And so that is what keeps me up at night and gets me up yeah, in the morning. We feel that. I'm interested in, in your experience growing up as a refugee, right? Um, and with parents who had to go through the resettlement process, our larger kind of podcast theme is about resettlement and displacement. And that, that resettlement process, like, what was that like for, for your family? Kind of what, what, what did that entail, right? Yeah. So, so and I should, I always am um, conscientious of clarifying. So what's interesting about my family is, though we were fleeing the Civil War in Sri Lanka, uh, we didn't actually come in as refugees. Oh. And I highlight that only because the reality is, is that it is a very messy world out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we talk about 68.5 million refugees, some of them don't even know the term in order to describe them as that or to apply for, frankly, a process that is incredibly complicated. So when my parents were seeking refuge, they really were just trying to figure out any country that they could grow to. And so at the time, they were actually about to move to Nigeria, and specifically northern Nigeria, so the area where 276 girls got kidnapped just for going to school. So I know whether I remained in Sri Lanka or moved to northern Nigeria, my life would have been very different. But of course, what happened was my uncle had moved to Texas, to rural Texas. And this, I guess you could call the heyday of immigration, he was able to sponsor his brothers and sisters knowing that the country was really very quickly entering this quagmire where thousands had been killed, children were being forced to serve in the army. Um, And so my parents just, of course, were, um, they felt like that America saved our lives by allowing us the opportunity to, to come here. So our resettlement was different in the sense that We came and it was uh, the churches, the temples, who literally put clothes on our backs because we came from a tropical island, having never seen snow. I didn't know what winter winter coats were like. So it was, you know, the community that helped provide us that. My parents were both teachers and it was the superintendent of his school in Baltimore City that actually found the basement apartment that we moved into. It was the vice principal of his school who literally helped us move our stuff in, who helped us start a bank account. And so in in some ways, I guess you could say that we benefited from a resettlement community that just Mm -hmm. ended up being kind of ad hoc and piecemeal and cobbled together. Uh (laughs) One of the things that we want to do with this podcast is is we're hoping to contribute to a a better narrative Mm -hmm. about displaced persons. And so from your perspective, like, like you must be involved in that as well from, from your standpoint. Can you talk about that a little bit, about, about how do we change yeah. the, the narrative? Yeah, I mean, you know, part of what I come into this role, and I've only been in it for four months, but I'll tell you, I can't really remember the pre-LRS world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what I try to emphasize is that, of course, when you turn on the TV or you pick up a newspaper, this feels like such a mammoth problem that it can feel overwhelming. But the reality is, is that every single person can do something. Mm -hmm. Whether that is volunteering to be a mentor to a refugee, sharing a meal with a refugee, helping an asylum seeker by providing foster care. You know, we just think that there are ways in which, um, you know, I have people from all over the country as I travel who say to me, what can I do? How can I help? 
and I say, well, roll up your sleeves, and I can find a place where you can help us provide meals, um, that basic shelter. You can help us with the logistics of figuring out basic transportation. Um, you know, when our refugees come into this country, we literally meet them at the airport. Yeah. And so being part of that welcome committee, right, it is so meaningful. We had a Congolese family fly into Albuquerque when I was there last week. And though they didn't have family there, and that's you know the case in, in some number of refugees, their resettlement, the whole community came out. It was an 11 p.m. flight, but the whole community was there to welcome them because they wanted them to feel like they were entering um, an extended family here in America. That is great. Um, we, it, it kind of the official definition of resettlement, right, is like you pick up a, a physical body from one place and put it mm-hmm. in another. It's like, okay, resettlement. Mm-hmm. Right, and what a lot of people have talked about today is that resettlement is a, a continual process mm-hmm. that can take years, yes. right? And do you have a, a, a perspective on that? Like, what it, what it, what does that entail? What from the community level, right? What yeah. do communities need to do? Not just in that short, like we show up at the airport for mm-hmm. you, but long term, what does that look like to have? refugees or people resettled in a, in a community. Yeah. Um, so sometimes people don't know that, you know, for refugee resettlement, that formal process that is supported by the federal government only covers 90 days, mm-hmm. right? And so, of course, it's incredibly difficult when you're coming to a country that is completely foreign to you. In many cases, you don't have a good handle on the language for there to truly be a community. My old boss would sometimes cite to the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to resettle a refugee. And so to have that support where we can connect a family into a faith-based community, an ethnic community, to know the community institutions that are available are hugely helpful because we can answer the questions for those first 90 days. And of course, LRS as an organization also partners with foundations, you know, institutions in order to extend what we call that long welcome, mm-hmm. because we do think that it's really important. And I stress that also because it's part of our responsibility to leverage taxpayer dollars. So we don't just take what the federal government gives us and feel comfortable with we will provide that set of services. We believe it's our responsibility to be there with them holding their hand for as long as we can Mm -hmm. as they walk a new path. And so that's where I just think that it's important to stress that there are ways in which every individual, every organization Mm -hmm. can help resettlement agencies like LRS. What about changing the minds of so many people who think that, you know, displaced people do not contribute? In fact, if anything, they take away from the system. But, But how about changing minds in terms of actually showing people or demonstrating that, in fact, they, they add so much value. Yeah. I mean, so, so you know, one of the things sometimes people say is, well, these people, they're just a drain on resources. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, well, think about the fact that in America, 14% of the, the country is, you know, it's, it's immigrant, you know, foreign-born, and 25% of new businesses are started by that population. Clearly, they're punching above their weight. Or take the fact that, you know, there is some rhetoric about how, you know, these people make our communities less safe. There have been studies done, longitudinal studies that have covered, you know, the last decade uh, from basically 2006 to 2015 that show in the 10 cities that received the highest number of refugees, crime, violent crime, property crime, 
steeply declined in nine of the 10 cities. And the one city where crime actually increased was Westfield, West Springfield, Massachusetts, where there was a you know, ravaging um, opioid epidemic also yeah. happening at that oh, time. Yeah. And so I just think that it's so important for people to hear the rhetoric and say, okay, well, I wanna know what the facts are. And to look at the data because you know I'm a numbers gal, and the the numbers here are so clear to show that in terms of the services refugees or you know migrant populations receive compared to what they provide in terms of tax revenue, in terms of employment creation, et cetera, it is so very clear that we benefit from their presence here. I want to ask the kind of a, a policy related question, especially considering your. Um Kind of political background, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes it feels like there's not a lot you can do to change federal policy on a federal level, right? But as far as local and community level things, what would you like to see changed on on maybe like a local or state policy level that can that can help migrants or refugees even in the midst of kind of the Trump administration and, and these kinds of policies? Yeah, I mean, you know, so coming from the city of Albuquerque last week, it was wonderful to feel like we were in this oasis of not just people saying we stand with you but actually putting their money where their mouth is so the city of albuquerque committed two hundred fifty thousand dollars mm -hmm. in order to provide these kinds of services the governor working alongside the city were able to actually identify a facility called the expo that will serve you know in terms of housing and i just think that you know we've heard a number of governors who have said we welcome these communities. Um, we know that they are a strength, not a weakness, that they really are a value and not a vulnerability. And I just think that everyone should know that if you're hearing this, you know, you should make sure that your representative understands that you know the importance of continuing to be true to our legacy, that this is how our country was born and built. But also that if you have a network out there Please, I mean, whether it's a social network and you can go on Facebook or Twitter, we've got to fight fire with fire. And I feel like right now, if we don't tell the narrative, it's going to be told for us. And so this is where, you know, I am certainly looking for those foot soldiers who can carry the message. Production of the In Place podcast is sponsored by the Center for Refugee, Migrant and Displacement Studies at Virginia Tech and is made possible by the brilliance and hard work of Virginia Tech students and faculty with the support and contributions of community members in the Commonwealth. For more information on this episode, our guests, or the podcast, please visit the InPlace website at inplacepodcast.com, where you will find descriptions of other episodes, links to the books and articles referenced by our guests, and a blog where Virginia Tech students develop their ideas on themes discussed on our show. You can also find links to other activities sponsored by the Center for Refugee, Migrant, and Displacement Studies at Virginia Tech. For questions or ideas for an episode, please email us at inplacepodcast at vt.edu.